Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. In 2021 alone, local founders have raised more than $5 billion in VC dollars, making Chicago a national destination for founders, investors, and innovators. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives growth and opportunity for our local tech economy and innovation ecosystem through its flagship programs such as the Chicago Venture Summit, Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine. Learn more via worldbusinesschicago.com. Dominic, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. Really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I really, uh, really appreciate it. And I love the podcast. So happy to be oh. here. I mean, there we go. Starting off with a compliment. That's just, that's 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 what I love to see. That's why I do this podcast. This is I'm already this is my favorite interview already. Um, I I love to I love to kick off a little bit with um, the background of Tambor and what you guys are working on. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you know, I'm the CEO CEO and founder of the company, and uh, it actually all started because. Um, I'm a musician, so I was a trained musician back in college, and I always had the these the stream of one day making it big, being the the next John Mayer or Billy Joel, something like that. And um, uh, as I was approaching graduation with this mountain of student debt and seeing just how hard that road is um, to actually, you know, make it and make money in the industry, uh, I decided to put those dreams to the side. At least for now, I said that ten years ago. They're still to the side for now. Um, but uh, and then, but it, it just brought to light to me this like really uh, difficult problem in the market. It's just really hard for artists to make it. And I, at the time, I was just like, okay, that's just the way it is. Um, then years later, uh, I got into a career in technology, um, and I was walking along the streets of Asheville, North Carolina, and I heard this uh, singer songwriter on the side of the road. And he was just like, like make you stop in your tracks good. Like he was just really, really amazing. And at the time, uh, I had no cash on me. I had no way to pay this guy. And I was, I was like, wow, this is incredible. He, this guy just gave me something of really significant value. Um, but I have no way to pay him. I have no way to thank him for what he did because I just happened to not be carrying cash. And that just got me thinking, there has got to be a technological solution to this. And not only that, there's got to be a community of people just like me who care about this type of music and these, these types of independent artists. Um, and I wonder if I can build a platform specifically to serve that community. And that was kind of the, the birthplace of Tambor was uh, to find a technological uh, solution to, one, help artists better monetize their, um, their followings and their their careers and then um, and build their careers and then uh, two to serve this audience of people who want something beyond the, the mainstream um, you know nothing against Taylor Swift but she's not for me um, I mean she's great she's great she's just not for me and uh, and I know that there are other people like me that are just looking for something more for the music and so uh, Tambor is this we call it a social streaming service so it's not only catered to get to get at that independent 
music, but also to create a social atmosphere where people can interact with one another, uh, experience the music live or listen on their own, but still be engaged with this community. Because we think that that's a, it's a really integral part to why this music is so, um, this type of music is so special to you. One part of your journey that I think is fascinating, well, a lot of it's fascinating, but uh, one thing that I always wonder is, you know, you have this sort of inception of the idea and and you realize that there is uh, an opportunity here to build something for musicians, by musicians. What was your next step in getting this company off the ground? Did, did you have experience with, you know, software engineering? Like, could you build the app yourself? I guess I think I talked to a lot of people who who have great ideas, but they just don't know where to go next, how to actually build this thing and get it from zero to one. What was kind of your journey from that perspective? Yeah, so um, I, like I said, I, I was in the technology field. Most of my background was in the, the data analytics side of the house. So it was more after the data is in trying to, make decisions, make smart decisions and, and things like that with, with the data. Uh, but I had maybe two or three years earlier just started doing uh, front-end web development uh, for fun in my spare time. And so kind of the next steps after I came up with this idea was like, okay, what are the key functionalities that I need to figure out how to do um, uh, just to get like a, an MVP put together? And so, uh, yeah, it started out with just me and uh, oh, one of this is actually very funny. Um, one of the other big instigators was uh, at the time AWS was fairly new. Um, like it been on the market maybe two years, but they were really trying to like expand it because they realized how profitable it could be. And they ran this promotion to that you would get a free server for a year just to play around with. And I was like, I'll take a free server just to build a thing for fun and see if I can make some money off it. Um, so yeah, that's where, that's where the MVP started. It was just uh, the luck of that promotion run by AWS. And then um, I had enough technical chops to get uh, kind of to uh, not even a beta version, I would say, say theta version. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it was a uh, it was that, that that was the next step. And then from there, just shopping that around to um, be, being a musician, I had a lot of uh, friends and fellow artists in the field and saying, is this something that you would use? Is this solving the problem that I think is there? And just getting enough affirmation, like, you know, we had several hundred artists kind of sign up right away because they just saw this as uh, a better way. Even like I would say the, the, mar- the market on the artist side kind of pushed things faster than my my tech skills could even keep up with it, to be honest. So that was, uh, yeah, that's how I got it started. So from a high level, um, and correct me anywhere here if I'm wrong, but from a high level, you've sort of digitized the process of, I hear a great musician on the street walk and I want to put a few dollars in the guitar case, right? The the, the classic kind of example. Have you, you've created a, a an application that has brought that into a digital sort of transaction. Is that safe to say from a high level and then we can sort of dive into the end-to-end journey for each you know the the, the listener and the artist yeah 100 percent. that's that's exactly right and and that's kind of the, the starting point but then we've also found lots of other kind of mechanisms we call them earning mechanisms uh, ways that artists can monetize on the platform as well so just trying to find uh different different avenues for them to to earn and, and make money off their music but yeah that's that's exactly right yep that's fascinating. What are some of the different ways that they can earn money on the platform? Sure. So, um, you know, we, we, you, you kind of can group users into two big, big groups. 
um, you've got your passive listeners and you've got your um, really active ones, right, who are interacting with their playlists and things like that and maybe like to go to live events and things like that. So um, if you group the users in, in that fashion, you, uh, you've got your active users. Now we've got like a donate button directly in the interface. So you can donate either from a live event on the platform or even when you're listening solo. You can just literally press a donate button. So uh, that's for your more active users. Um, in addition to that, uh, if you then sign up for premium, uh, which allows you to have an ad-free experience and also uh, some additional capabilities like uh, the ability to uh, listen to songs offline and that sort of thing, um, then you actually can choose your favorite artists to back with your subscription. So almost like a Patreon model. So Matt, if you decide to become a musician, you have to plug your music, and you get uh, you know 25 of your closest friends and family to sign up for premium, then you're going to make $50 a month off of their subscriptions every single month. And that type of sustained income uh, is, uh, is um, you know, how we can uh, help artists build a better career. Um, so those are for the more active ones, the ones that are really engaged. And then in addition to that, you know, there's, there's the uh, paper stream laws that are in place, right? Um, so that's for, um, you know, in, initially it was to try and help protect musicians. But these days, any musician will tell you, that that's a joke um, because they get paid something between 0. 0.000. I, actually, I just looked up this number this morning at 0. 0.00084 cents and 0. 0.003 cents um, <clears throat> between those two numbers per stream. So they're making no money whatsoever. Um, and, and I understand why the paper stream model is so risky because it, you can imagine from the company's perspective, if a person just, um, puts on a playlist and then walks away, and then you're paying for every single song that's that's playing, that's really risky. And so what do you do? You make that number really, really low. And so what we decided to do was to switch the model, actually, to a pay-per-like. So we call it our reaction royalty. So basically every time a user likes a song, so this is, again, a passive user typically, oh, something pops up, I'll press the heart button because I want to hear it later. Um, Anytime that happens, then the musician makes money. And what we've found is that by isolating it down to just those instances when you're really connecting with the users, first of all, we're able to pay a lot more per like than you're able to pay per stream. But then even if you normalize it to be the same uh, metric, we're actually paying somewhere between 15 and 16 cents per stream compared, again, to 0 0.003 cents. So orders of magnitude difference. Um, so yeah, we're just rethinking the model in both the passive and active experience and just finding better ways, um, to, to help these musicians make money. And, you know, something we talked about before the show, but I, I'd love to kind of hear you expand on is the idea I'm sure you get from investors, from, from casual observers, probably the question of, oh, you know, why not just use an Instagram, um, video and, you know, set up my Venmo link right below that. I guess, how would you respond to, to that question? Yeah, 100%. Um, so one of the things that I, when I talk to investors about this, is uh, to make it clear that we are a technology-enabled company, but we are, technology is not our moat. That's not our magic sauce. And, you know, technology is what drives us. But, you know, we, we are just enabling or utilizing a lot of technology that's really already out there. Um, 
the big thing for us is that we're building this for a very specific community and for the people. And so that's where we believe our moat is. And so this is people who specifically want to come to a, a space to support indie musicians, or it's for musicians who are looking for new tools to build their careers. And so, you know, you and I were talking a little bit about this before in the world of podcasting. And today we're using something called Squadcast to record this. And I was like, why, you know, why don't we just use Zoom? And you said, well, there's all these specific things that me as a podcaster doing these interviews are really important. And, uh, and so I think it's that made to the specific consumer model that makes us different. I mean, you see the same thing in uh, companies like Twitch, um, building things just for the gaming community and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so that's that's mostly how I respond. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, there's there's this power law dynamic in every industry, you know, where 20 percent of whatever profession it is could be movies, you know, music um, you know, financial services, you know, 20% creates 80% of the profit or, you know, retains 80% of the revenue. I'm curious if, if you view this as effectively enabling, you know, the other 80% or the kind of the way you sort of frame the market size, the market potential of this idea. How do you think about that in the context of the overall music landscape? Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. And your, your proportions are, um, in the music industry specifically, the proportions are even worse, to be honest. It's closer to the top 5% um, that, that garner about 95% of the, of the, the revenues. Um, and that's driven by these centralized, um, the, the, the centralized record labels. You know, so they're able, they have all the market power, they're able to leverage the deals, and then they just kind of choose the winners. Um, and there's, uh, you know, they have the, they have the advantage of, not sure if you're um, familiar with the psychological concept of the mere exposure effect, but the idea that if you just are simply exposed to something enough times, eventually you're like, okay, it's fine. I like it well enough. <laughs> so that's why you hear the same song 10 times on the radio. And then all of a sudden you're walking through the supermarket and you start singing it to yourself. And you're like, I didn't like this <laughs> two weeks ago, but now I'm, I know all the lyrics, what's going on. Um, so, so yeah. So, when uh, so when you say I'm there for the other 95%, you're exactly right. Um, and then as far as as market size, the, the way that we think about it is um, we really see our, ourselves as part of uh, what's been described as the passion economy. So uh, this um, economic cultural movement to where people actually care about. Um, the creators of things and uh, the sourcing of things. So fair trade movement, um, the Etsy, Minted, you know, all these companies that are taking advantage of supporting, um, taking advantage sounds negative, but enabling these independent creators and, and the market that is interested in supporting that. Like, okay, I'll pay a dollar premium to make sure you're actually making sure that farmer is able to get a living wage. Like I'll, um, we're seeing that more and more. Um, and so we just see ourselves kind of at the intersection of that passion economy and then the attention economy, which is bringing these communities together in a, in a uh, engaging social platform. I have to ask the, the lazy question, uh, but <laughs> uh, NFTs, you know, blockchain, how does this fit it all into, you know, it, the landscape as you see it today, the music industry, you know, your company, what do you think is the place of sort of um, NFTs with respect to the music industry? 
Yeah, to to be honest, I don't have a great um, a great answer for. It's just so early to make to make any sort of definitive predictions about where these things. Because to be honest, my instinct says this feels fatty. This feels like it's it's not going to last that long. Because in the end, um, uh, the things like uh, NFTs for for art and things like that, um, it, it becomes more of a uh, a pride thing <laughs> like oh i was able to spend three million dollars on this digital image that was that's easily replicated um and so for me if if it ends up being a lasting thing where you know the original version of this mp3 when i first recorded or, or, or wav file whatever um when i first recorded it uh you can sell that for more money for whatever reason like you know a, a white album or things like that um I think that's great for musicians. I, I hope it enables them more, but I'm wary to think that it's some sort of long-term solution because um, it feels much more in the vein of, uh, you know, vinyl making a comeback. I think that will, that will peter out over time and things like that. Um, it's just, uh, you know, so that, that's, that's my current view of it. Um, but again, this is, pretty new phenomenon less than a year old i think at this point so uh, i don't want to be uh, held to that in the long term because i could be wrong and, and honestly if i am wrong i do think it will be a good thing for musicians in the long run so that's so that's good and then i you know speaking of the long run sorry speaking of the long run what uh, what's on the slate for your product roadmap in the next six to 12 months you know where do you see the product going what are some of the new you know, new initiatives you guys are looking to take on. Curious how you see the next, you know, six to 12 months. Yeah. So uh, in the last six months, we've really been focused on the synchronous social experience. So we've been really working on uh, making sure that the when the artist puts on a virtual performance, the performance is good, the sound quality is good, the donation process is really seamless. And so now we're really, the next six months are really going to be focused on that asynchronous social experience. So how can we use the, the data we're gathering from our listeners, not in a way that we're selling it to marketing, but rather in a way to enhance their experience. So, hey, Matt, you and I, turns out we like the same 10 songs, uh, Maybe we should connect because we have a lot in common as far as our musical tastes. Um, uh, adding things like commenting and liking and, and direct messages with artists, just finding more ways for our community to connect in an asynchronous way. Again, appeasing to that um, less engaged, less active, passive sort of listener, um, but it's still allowing them to be an active part of the community on, kind of on their own time when they can't make it to a live performance. That sort of thing. So that's where the majority of our... Um, uh, technology efforts are gone. And then from a financing status or standpoint, are you actively fundraising? Will you be fundraising in the future? Would love to hear kind of from that perspective. Yeah. So we are actively fundraising. So, um, currently, uh, trying to close a seed round, um, right now looking to between 700 million dollars in funding. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, conversation after conversation. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, one of the big things is that for the last eight or nine months, we've mostly been in stealth mode until September 1st, we had our big kind of launch and re-entry into the market. Um, we called it our don't call it a comeback campaign. Um, and uh, we 
we started that last month. So the early data is looking really good. We were able to 5X our monthly active users. We're getting lots of listeners in these aux room, our, our listening experience and artists are making good money. Artists are earning uh, an average of about $53 in tips for a virtual concert, which is incredible for, <laughs> for a virtual concert where only, you know, maybe eight to 10 people are there. I mean, that's a huge, huge, um, tool for them to, to make money in the future. So it's really good. I'm going to take a quick time out. Uh, oh yeah. Go my, for it. Sorry. Yeah. My computer's about to die. Um, so I need to, Oh, no worries. No worries. I've never had anyone do the timeout symbol when they needed yeah. to take a break. I like that. That's a good touch. Because <laughs> I knew exactly what was happening. That was great. No one ever does that. Would have worked perfectly if I had uh, – there was like a little lag. There was like a two-second lag. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So um, I'll just start. I was going to ask about kind of go to market motion and, you know, if how you're sort of getting artists onto the platform and the strategy behind that. Um, so I was just going to go into that question. Yeah. Uh, shit, sorry. Still... Okay. Do you want to re-ask that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. I'll, we're good us down. Okay. I'll count us back in, as they say in your business industry, right? Perfect. You're in, yeah. in, in, the, in the music biz. Um, all right. Three, two, one. I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of the go-to-market strategy. How are you approaching getting artists on the platform? Is it word of mouth? Is it SEO? Are you are you you know reaching out to these artists individually? Um, just curious because I feel like there's so many potential artists who could be on this platform. There's so many avenues you could go down. How do you kind of strategize that part of it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we have done it kind of with the, there's three big prongs to the attack. So um, the SEO digital marketing side is actually the last prong. We haven't done a lot of that yet, uh, mostly because that's somewhere where I'm, I've got enough experience in digital marketing to know if you don't do it really well, you can uh, spend a lot of money <laughs> quickly without much return. Um, so instead, uh, the first two prongs are actually uh, through partnerships. So there are a lot of companies in the indie music space not doing what we're doing but that are in adjacent space wanting to serve this community. So some of our biggest partnerships are with uh, Reverb Nation, um, who's been serving this community for years, um, and then uh, a, uh, a uh, company called openmic.us, which basically uh, artists sign up to find out where the next open mic event is. And so they, they have uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of artists across the country. So we've done uh, partnerships with them to reach out to their audience. They mostly work with us just because they love what we're doing. I mean, this is one of those communities where people are just happy to help because they see the problem and any, anyone that's working on a solution, they're, they're going to help. So, uh, so those, those have been really fruitful partnerships. And then the, the next level is um, through word of mouth and direct artist connection. So um, I'm having between 20 and 30 artists uh, meetings uh, a week, um, just kind of explaining what the platform is, helping them get set up. Um, one of we talk about the company as a B2B to C uh, go-to-market strategy where the artist is the uh, middle business and then they bring in their consumers, their fans. Um, and that's our, that's our whole approach. Uh, one of the things that we have um, uh, struggled with or not, I wouldn't say struggled with, but we're trying to kind of 
build a process around is some artists aren't necessarily the best business people. Um, so they may not be that responsive to emails. They may miss meetings, they, those sorts of things. They're not super tech savvy, so don't know how to set up their, their account or whatever. So we try to make things as easy as possible. But then also we find that a lot of handholding really helps. And it also is on brand with us because uh, we're, we're, you know, we're there to support them. So, um, you know, we're looking to part of the reason that we're fundraising is, first of all, to in, continued investment in the technology, but then also to build out that artist community management team. So the, the ones that are working on those relationships and um, doing that. But uh, yeah, so that's that's our go-to-market strategy. And then on top of that, I think after we have right now working but with about 1,600 artists, um, but once we get to an even bigger um, kind of seed, then I think you can really start le- leveraging those digital marketing tools with uh, the lookalike capabilities and things like that built into um, Facebook and uh, the others. So, so that's kind of our current approach. Can you get artists on the platform? And this is just somebody who doesn't really know the music industry that well, but if an artist is on the platform or signed by a record label, I mean, how many people are still doing that today with Spotify? What's, what's kind of the... I guess, how do record labels factor into this market, into your sort of product? Yeah, so record labels are uh, are tricksy. Um, <laughs> so the, on, on the one hand, obviously, they've got these artists that have huge names and huge brand recognition. But uh, the good news for us is that it's such a small portion of artists. Like I said, probably less than 5% of the artists are with the big record labels. Um in general, what are called indie record, it's kind of weird because there is this whole, there's the big record labels there, like Universal, Sony, um, and there's one other that's not coming to mind. But um, but then there's a bunch of quote unquote independent record labels that are also can be kind of big as well and, and have some big names as well. Um, and so what we find is that uh, if an artist happens to be signed um, by whatever level of record label they have, it really typically is just up to their management whether or not they're allowed to participate. We don't we don't put any restrictions on it, but we also don't give them any special treatment, which is what we have found is often the request, I will say, from from their management. Like, oh, we want to be featured on X number of playlists in the next 12 months or things like that. And like, I'll say, no, we can't, we don't give favoritism just because you're on a record label. Um, we want to help all artists. Um, so that, that's, that's been the, the pushback there. But to be honest, it hasn't been a huge issue. Uh, the DIY movement in the, the artistic world is um, uh, gr- building up steam. And so more and more artists are finding that, why would I go to a record label when I can make sustainable income through other platforms? Um, and then it's just that no one has kind of taken on that central one of, of the streaming music. They just think there's no music, no money in streaming music. They think it's just an advertising tool and then I'll make it, make it up in my performance or whatever. Um, and that's the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, then there are people willing to pay for streaming music and that money should make it back to your hands rather than, rather than those middlemen. So. Yeah, totally. I think that totally makes sense. Um, I mean, it's such a fascinating idea and it, it seems like it's addressing a need that to your point you know while streaming services have grown while the industry has changed so much the needs and wants of the majority of artists still remain the same and still for the most part are unmet um 
So I think it's just a really inter- interesting intersection of, of, of market needs and, and what you guys are willing to, you know, able to offer. I think one area I wanted to touch on, um, you know, your experiences as a MBA student um, going to Chicago Booth um, and as an entrepreneur, as somebody who's you know started a company and gotten their MBA, is that something you would? And I talk to some you know people in their mid early twenties all the time who are considering starting a company or considering going to get their MBA, but they know they want to end up in entrepreneurship. What would you say your MBA experience did for your sort of acumen and, and your ability as a founder? Um, yeah, so. I will say that I was resistant to the idea of an MBA for many years. I actually kind of started my MBA kind of late in my, uh, I'm 33 now. And uh, I started when I was 30 or 31, something like that. Um, And one of the reasons I was resistant is because I think there is this kind of idealized um, vision of what the right or the best entrepreneurs are. It's someone that dropped out of Harvard or Stanford. And, um, and if you're just not genius enough to make it work without, um, without doing that, then maybe you're just not an entrepreneur. That's, that's the thing that was in the back of my head for a lot of years. Um, and I really regret that in a lot of ways because, uh, the lessons I've learned at Booth, the, the, um, the connections I've made, the the feedback I've gotten uh, has been extraordinarily helpful, extraordinarily helpful. And um, it, just from how I think about problems to how I think about research in the market, how I think about interacting with my customers and, and, and their needs and even reading market indicators. Um, there's a, I don't know how specific you want to get into Booth, but there was a class um, that uh, I took with uh, Austin Goolsby, who's famously was an economic advisor for President Obama as well. But we were talking about platform competition, which is obviously the world I'm in. And uh, there was just this really simple lesson of uh, daily active users is not necessarily uh, an indicator of willingness to pay. And it was like, it was like a mind blowing takeaway for me. Like, Oh, they're there. Of course they're going to give me money eventually, but that's just not the way it works. Um, and, um, and yeah, to have delayed that by several years, because I'd taken my GMAT back many years prior to that. I am, I do regret that. So I would say to any young entrepreneur who's considering going that route, um, don't delay anything that's going to give you further tools to get better at stuff. Um, like any sort of education uh, will will be helpful. And um, if you do what I did, which is hold that kind of idealized version of what an entrepreneur is in your head, you're, you're likely going to kind of um, clip yourself the knees um, and, and delay, delay the growth of your company. So it's been, it, it was a, a great experience. And yeah, I, my only regret is probably not having started earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Booth's going to love that answer. Uh, I would think (laughs) that somebody, (laughs) so I, you know, one of the last questions I'm curious about with you, because you're somebody who clearly had a passion and a dream and you sort of, you know, as you were leaving college, you realized, you know, real life hit and you had to put it on hold, but you still found a way to incorporate that passion that you've always had into your everyday life and sort of run at it and and dedicate your life towards it um, to this point. 
Curious if you have any kind of advice for young professionals who do have these strong passions, you know, coming out of college, but also are sort of facing the constraints of, okay, maybe needing to get a full-time job, immerse yourself in the workforce, um, you know, whatever your passions may be, any kind of life advice you would give to people who are kind of weighing the same decisions and trying to figure out how they can incorporate their passions into their work life or into their everyday life? Yeah, so uh, as I tell the story now, it has a very straight line um, as to, oh, he, he had this passion and then uh, he figured out exactly how to integrate it into his life later on. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't a straight line at all um, when you actually lived it. You know, um, I think that the one piece of advice that I would give anybody is to just always be proactive about their learning and willing to learn. Um, and, uh, you know, as long as you keep that attitude then, um, you know, whatever you're passionate about, you'll figure out a way to integrate it into to what you want to do. Um, the, uh, the story I love to tell people, because like I said, I've been in data analytics for what, 11, 12 years now at this point. Um, when I first started my first job uh, and uh, I started out as a project manager, someone, my, my manager asked me to do an analysis of a project I was proposing. Uh, in Excel, and he was like, I want to see the ROI, like how long is it going to take to pay for itself? How much money will we save over the next year? Pretty straightforward thing. Um, but I didn't know that Excel could do formulas. He he taught me that if you put an equal sign in the, the little thing at the top, you can do math. <laughs> that's That's the level of technical, lack of technical aptitude that I was at at that point. And now I've got 10 years of experience doing where I've built entire business intelligence infrastructures and, you know, coding and that sort of thing. But one response to that could have been, I don't know how to do that. I'll get somebody else to help me with the Excel part and I'll just do the thinking. Um, but instead, my approach was, OK, yeah, this seems interesting. I could learn. Oh, there's a lot here. And then I just dove in Excel. I always say Excel was my first love. Um, in the technical world. And then that just led me down this road of, of all these different things. Um, but yeah, I think it's that that shift of uh, finding somebody else to help you with it. I mean, I'm not saying don't find help when you need it, uh, but your willingness to continually be proactive about your learning, and then you'll find a way to integrate it. I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to put the idea together um, that I mentioned in Asheville without having done all that work ahead of time, not necessarily knowing where learning SQL or learning uh, Python or PHP. I didn't know how those things would help me. It just was interesting and, and, and was engaging. And so um, I think if, if you follow those little rabbit holes, eventually, especially earlier in your career, you'll, you'll find ways to meld them all together and see how all these tools work, work together to do something. Um, and that's at least that's how it worked for me. And of one, so. <laughs> I think that's great advice. I think it is so true when you look at your story. It seems like it was almost intentional, but I, I know from many of these conversations, it almost never is. Um, Dominic, I want to thank you so much for hopping on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to find Tambor, if they want to learn more about you, your story, you know, download the app, get involved, where can they go? Yeah, so uh, we're available on Android or iOS in the App Store, um, just T-A-M-B-R. Um, and then if you want to look at the website, uh, it's just uh, tambor.io. And then uh, you can just, 
you know, for me, you can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook or uh, whatever. My name's Dominic Go. <laughs> nothing, nothing too complicated, and there's not many of us, so you'll find me quickly. <laughs> awesome. Dominic, thank you so much. Can't wait to have you on again in the future. You bet. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it.